Section 10 of My Discovery of England by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We have with us tonight. Not only during my tour in England, but for many years past, it has been my lot to speak and to lecture in all sorts of places, under all sorts of circumstances, and before all sorts of audiences. I say this not in boastfulness, but in sorrow. Indeed, I only mention it to establish the fact that when I talk of lecturers and speakers, I talk of what I know. Few people realize how arduous and how disagreeable public lecturing is. The public sees the lecturer step out onto the platform in his little white waistcoat and his long-tailed coat and with a false air of a conjurer about him, and they think him happy. After about ten minutes of his talk they are tired of him. Most people tire of a lecture in ten minutes. Clever people do it in five. Sensible people never go to lectures at all. But the people who do go to a lecture and who get tired of it presently hold it as a sort of grudge against the lecturer personally. In reality his sufferings are worse than theirs. For my own part I always try to appear as happy as possible while I am lecturing. I take this to be part of the trade of anybody labelled a humorist and paid as such. I have no sympathy whatever with the idea that a humorist ought to be a lugubrious person with a face stamped with melancholy. This is a cheap and elementary effect belonging to the level of a circus clown. The image of laughter shaking both his sides is the truer picture of comedy. Therefore, I say, I always try to appear cheerful at my lectures, and even to laugh at my own jokes. Oddly enough, this arouses a kind of resentment in some of the audience. "'Well, I will say,' said a stern-looking woman, who spoke to me after one of my lectures, "'you certainly do seem to enjoy your own fun.' "'Madame,' I answered, "'if I didn't, who would?' but in reality the whole business of being a public lecturer is one long variation of boredom and fatigue. So I propose to set down here some of the many trials which the lecturer has to bear. The first of his troubles, which any one who begins giving public lectures meets at the very outset, is the fact that the audience won't come to hear him. This happens invariably and constantly, and not through any fault or shortcoming of the speaker." I don't say that this happened very often to me in my tour of England. In nearly all cases I had crowded audiences. By dividing up the money that I received by the average number of people present to hear me, I have calculated that they paid thirteen cents each. And my lectures are evidently worth thirteen cents. But at home in Canada I have very often tried the fatal experiment of lecturing for nothing, and in that case the audience simply won't come. A man will turn out at night when he knows he is going to hear a first-class thirteen-cent lecture. But when the thing is given for nothing, why go to it? The city in which I live is overrun with little societies, clubs, and associations, always wanting to be addressed. So at least it is in appearance. In reality, the societies are composed of presidents, secretaries, and officials, who want the conspicuousness of office, and a large list of other members who don't come to the meetings. For such an association, the invited speaker who is to lecture for nothing prepares his lecture on Indo-Germanic Factors in the Current of History. If he is a professor, he takes all the winter at it. 
You may drop in at his house at any time, and his wife will tell you that he is upstairs working on his lecture. If he comes down at all, it is in carpet slippers and dressing gown. His mental vision of his meeting is that of a huge gathering of keen people with Indo-Germanic faces hanging upon every word. Then comes the fated night. There are seventeen people present. The lecturer refuses to count them. He refers to them afterwards as about a hundred. To this group he reads his paper on the Indo-Germanic factor. It takes him two hours. When he is over, the chairman invites discussion. There is no discussion. The audience is willing to let the Indo-Germanic factors go unchallenged. Then the chairman makes this speech. He says, I am very sorry indeed that we should have had such a very poor turnout tonight. I am sure that the members who are not here have missed a real treat in the delightful paper that we have listened to. I want to assure the lecturer that if he comes to the Owls Club again, we can guarantee him next time a capacity audience. And will any members, please, who haven't paid their dollar this winter, pay it either to me or to Mr. Sibley as they pass out? I have heard this speech, in the years that I have had to listen to it, so many times that I know it by heart. I have made the acquaintance of the Owls Club under so many names that I recognize it at once. I am aware that its members refuse to turn out in cold weather, that they do not turn out in wet weather, that when the weather is really fine it is impossible to get them together, that the slightest counter-attraction, a hockey match, a sacred concert, goes to their heads at once. There was a time when I was the newly appointed occupant of a college chair and had to address the Owls Club. It is a penalty that all new professors pay and the owls batten upon them like bats. It is one of the compensations of age that I am free of the owls' club forever. But in the days when I still had to address them, I used to take it out of the owls in a speech, delivered, in imagination only and not out loud, to the assembled meeting of the seventeen owls, after the chairman had made his concluding remarks. It ran as follows. Gentlemen, if you are such which I doubt, I realize that the paper which I have read on Was Hegel a Deist has been in error. I spent all the winter on it, and now I realize that not one of you pups knew who Hegel was or what a deist is. Never mind, it is over now and I am glad. But just let me say this, only this, which won't keep you a minute. Your chairman has been good enough to say that if I come again you will get together a capacity audience to hear me. Let me tell you that if your society waits for its next meeting till I come to address you again, you will wait indeed. In fact, gentlemen, I say it very frankly, it will be in another world. But I pass over the audience. Suppose that there is a real audience, and suppose them all duly gathered together. Then it becomes the business of that gloomy gentleman, facetiously referred to in the newspaper reports as the genial chairman, to put the lecturer to the bad. In nine cases out of ten he can do so. Some chairmen, indeed, develop a great gift for it. Here are one or two examples from my own experience. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' said the chairman of a society in a little country town in western Ontario, to which I had come as a paid, a very humbly paid, lecturer, "'we have with us tonight a gentleman,' Here he made an attempt to read my name on a card, 
failed to read it, and put the card back in his pocket. A gentleman who is to lecture us on— Here he looked at his card again. On ancient— ancient— I don't very well see what it is. Ancient— Britain? Thank you. On ancient Britain. Now this is the first of our series of lectures for this winter. The last series, as you all know, was not a success. In fact, we came out at the end of the year with a deficit. So this year we are starting a new line and trying the experiment of cheaper talent. Here the chairman gracefully waved his hand toward me, and there was a certain amount of applause. Before I sit down, the chairman added, I'd like to say that I am sorry to see such a poor turnout tonight, and to ask any of the members who haven't paid their dollar to pay it either to me or to Mr. Sibley as they pass out. Let anybody who feels the discomfiture of coming out before an audience on any terms judge how it feels to crawl out in front of them labeled cheaper talent. Another charming way in which the chairman endeavors to put both the speaker for the evening and the audience into an entirely good humor is by reading out letters of regret from persons unable to be present. This, of course, is only for grand occasions when the speaker has been invited to come under very special auspices. It was my fate, not long ago, to appear, this is the correct word to use in this connection, in this capacity, when I was going about Canada trying to raise some money for the relief of the Belgians. I travelled in great glory with a pass on the Canadian Pacific Railway, not since extended, officials of the road kindly note this, and was most generously entertained wherever I went. It was, therefore, the business of the chairman at such meetings as these to try and put a special distinction or cachet on the gathering. This is how it was done. Ladies and gentlemen, said the chairman, rising from his seat on the platform with a little bundle of papers in his hand, before I introduce the speaker of the evening, I have one or two items that I want to read to you. Here he rustles his papers, and there is a deep hush in the hall while he selects one. We had hoped to have with us tonight Sir Robert Borden, the Prime Minister of this Dominion. I have just received a telegram from Sir Robert, in which he says that he will not be able to be here. Great applause. The chairman puts up his hand for silence, picks up another telegram, and continues. Our committee, ladies and gentlemen, telegraphed an invitation to Sir Wilfrid Laurier, very cordially inviting him to be here tonight. I have here Sir Wilfrid's answer, in which he says that he will not be able to be with us. Renewed applause. The chairman again puts up his hand for silence, and goes on, picking up one paper after another. The Minister of Finance regrets that he will be unable to come. Applause. Mr. Rodolphe Lemieux. Applause. Will not be here. Great applause. The Mayor of Toronto. Applause. Is detained on business. Wild applause. The Anglican Bishop of the Diocese. Applause. The Principal of the University College, Toronto great applause, the Minister of Education, applause, none of these are coming. There is a great clapping of hands and enthusiasm, after which the meeting is called to order with a very distinct and palpable feeling that it is one of the most distinguished audiences ever gathered in the hall. Here is another experience of the same period, while I was pursuing the same exalted purpose. 
I arrived in a little town in eastern Ontario, and found to my horror that I was billed to appear in a church. I was supposed to give readings from my works, and my books were supposed to be of a humorous character. A church hardly seemed the right place to get funny in. I explained my difficulty to the pastor of the church, a very solemn-looking man. He nodded his head, slowly and gravely, as he grasped my difficulty. "'I see,' he said. "'I see, but I think I can introduce you to our people in such a way as to make that right.' When the time came, he led me up onto the pulpit platform of the church, just beside and below the pulpit itself, with a reading-desk and a big Bible and a shaded light beside it. It was a big church, and the audience, sitting in half-darkness, as is customary during a sermon, reached away back into the gloom. The place was packed full and absolutely quiet. Then the chairman spoke. "'Dear friends,' he said, "'I want you to understand that it will be all right to laugh to-night.' Let me hear you laugh heartily, laugh right out, just as much as ever you want to, because, and here his voice assumed the deep sepulchral tones of the preacher, when we think of the noble object for which the professor appears to-night, we may be assured that the Lord will forgive any one who will laugh at the professor. I am sorry to say, however, that none of the audience, even with the plenary absolution in advance, were inclined to take a chance on it. I recall in this same connection the chairman of a meeting at a certain town in Vermont. He represents the type of chairman who turns up so late at the meeting that the committee have no time to explain to him properly what the meeting is about, or who the speaker is. I noticed on this occasion that he introduced me very guardedly by name, from a little card, and said nothing about the Belgians, and nothing about my being, supposed to be, a humorist. This last was a great error. The audience, for want of guidance, remained very silent and decorous, and well behaved during my talk. Then, somehow, at the end, while someone was moving a vote of thanks, the chairman discovered his error. So he tried to make it good. Just as the audience were getting up to put on their wraps, he rose, knocked on his desk, and said, "'Just a minute, please, ladies and gentlemen, just a minute.' I have just found out, I should have known it sooner, but I was late in coming to this meeting, that the speaker who has just addressed you has done so in behalf of the Belgian Relief Fund. I understand that he is a well-known Canadian humorist, ha-ha, and I am sure that we have all been immensely amused, ha-ha. He is giving his delightful talks, ha-ha, though I didn't know this till just this minute, for the Belgian Relief Fund, and he is giving his services for nothing. I am sure when we realize this, we shall all feel that it has been well worth while to come. I am only sorry that we didn't have a better turnout tonight. But I can assure the speaker that if he will come again, we shall guarantee him a capacity audience. And I may say, if there are any members of this association who have not paid their dollar this season, they can give it either to myself or to Mr. Sibley as they pass out." With the amount of accumulated experience that I had behind me, I was naturally interested during my lecture in England in the chairmen who were to introduce me. I cannot help but feel that I have acquired a fine taste in chairmen. I know them just as other experts know old furniture and Pekinese dogs. 
the witty chairman, the prosy chairman, the solemn chairman, I know them all. As soon as I shake hands with the chairman in the committee room, I can tell exactly how he will act. There are certain types of chairmen who have so often been described, and are so familiar, that it is not worth while to linger on them. Everybody knows the chairman who says, Now, ladies and gentlemen, you have not come here to listen to me, so I will be very brief. In fact, I will confine my remarks to just one or two very short observations. He then proceeds to make observations for twenty-five minutes. At the end of it, he remarks with charming simplicity, Now I know that you are all impatient to hear the lecturer. And everybody knows the chairman who comes to the meeting with a very imperfect knowledge of who or what the lecturer is, and is driven to introduce him by saying, Our lecturer of the evening is widely recognized as one of the greatest authorities on, on, on his subject in the world to-day. He comes to us from, from a great distance, and I can assure him that it is a great pleasure to this audience to welcome a man who has done so much to, to, to advance the interests of, of, of everything as he has. But this man, bad as he is, is not so bad as the chairman whose preparation for introducing the speaker has obviously been made at the eleventh hour. Just such a chairman it was my fate to strike in the form of a local alderman, built like an ox, in one of those small manufacturing places in the north of England, where they grow men of this type and elect them into office. "'I never saw the lecturer before,' he said, "'but I've read his book. I have written nineteen books. The committee was good enough to send me over his book last night.' I didn't read it all, but I took a look at the preface, and I can assure him that he is very welcome. I understand he comes from a college. Then he turned directly towards me and said in a loud voice, What was the name of that college over there you said you came from? McGill, I answered equally loudly. He comes from McGill, the chairman boomed out. I never heard of McGill myself, but I can assure him he's welcome. He's going to lecture us on, what did you say it was to be about? It's a humorous lecture, I said. Aye, it's to be a humorous lecture, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll venture to say it will be a rare treat. I am only sorry I can't stay for it myself, as I have to get back over to the town hall for a meeting. So without more ado, I'll get off the platform and let the lecturer go on with his humor." A still more terrible type of chairman is the one whose mind is evidently preoccupied and disturbed with some local happening, and who comes on to the platform with a face imprinted with distress. Before introducing the lecturer, he refers in moving tones to the local sorrow, whatever it is. As a prelude to a humorous lecture, this is not gay. Such a chairman fell to my lot one night before a gloomy audience in a London suburb. As I look about this hall to-night, he began in a doleful whine, I see many empty seats. Here he stifled a sob. Nor am I surprised that a great many of our people should prefer to-night to stay quietly at home. I had no clue to what he meant. I merely gathered that some particular sorrow must have overwhelmed the town that day. To many it may seem hardly fitting that after the loss our town has sustained we should come out here to listen to a humorous lecture. 
"'What's the trouble?' I whispered to a citizen sitting beside me on the platform. "'Our oldest resident,' he whispered back. "'He died this evening.' "'How old?' Ninety-four, he whispered. Meantime the chairman, with deep sobs in his voice, continued. "'We debated in our committee whether or not we should have the lecture.' Had it been a lecture of another character, our position would have been less difficult. By this time I began to feel like a criminal. The case would have been different had the lecture been one that contained information, or that was inspired by some serious purpose, or that could have been of any benefit. But this is not so. We understand that this lecture, which Mr. Leacock has already given, I believe, twenty or thirty times in England— here he turned to me with a look of mild reproval, while the silent audience, deeply moved, all looked at me as at a man who went around the country insulting the memory of the dead by giving a lecture thirty times. "'We understand, though this we shall have an opportunity of testing for ourselves presently, that Mr. Leacock's lecture is not of a character which, has not, so to speak, the kind of value, in short, is not a lecture of that class. Here he paused and choked back a sob. Had our poor friend been spared to us for another six years, he would have rounded out the century. But it was not to be. For two or three years past, he has noted that somehow his strength was failing, that for some reason or other he was no longer what he had been. Last month he began to droop. Last week he began to sink. Speech left him last Tuesday. This morning he passed, and he has gone now, we trust, in safety to where there are no lectures. The audience were now nearly in tears. The chairman made a visible effort towards firmness and control. But yet, he continued, our committee felt that in another sense it was our duty to go on with our arrangements— I think, ladies and gentlemen, that the war has taught us all that it is always our duty to carry on, no matter how hard it may be, no matter with what reluctance we do it, and whatever be the difficulties and the dangers, we must carry on to the end. For after all, there is an end, and by resolution and patience we can reach it. I will, therefore, invite Mr. Leacock to deliver to us his humorous lecture, the title of which I have forgotten, but I understand it to be the same lecture which he has already given thirty or forty times in England. But contrast with this melancholy man, the genial and pleasing person who introduced me, all upside down, to a metropolitan audience. He was so brisk, so neat, so sure of himself, that it didn't seem possible that he could make any kind of a mistake. I thought it unnecessary to coach him. He seemed absolutely all right. "'It is a great pleasure,' he said, with a charming, easy appearance of being entirely at home on the platform, "'to welcome here to-night our distinguished Canadian fellow-citizen, Mr. Leroyd.' He turned halfway towards me as he spoke, with a sort of gesture of welcome, admirably executed. If only my name had been Leroyd instead of Leacock, it would have been excellent. "'There are many of us,' he continued, "'who have awaited Mr. Leroyd's coming with the most pleasant anticipations. We seemed from his books to know him already as an old friend. 
In fact, I think I do not exaggerate when I tell Mr. Leroyd that his name in our city has long been a household word. I have very, very great pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, in presenting to you Mr. Leroyd. As far as I know, that chairman never knew his error. At the close of my lecture, he said that he was sure that the audience were deeply indebted to Mr. Leroyd, and then, with a few words of rapid, genial apology, buzzed off, like a hummingbird, to other avocations. But I have amply forgiven him. Anything for kindness and geniality. It makes the whole of life smooth. If that chairman ever comes to my home town, he is hereby invited to lunch or dine with me, as Mr. Leroyd, or under any name that he selects." Such a man is, after all, in sharp contrast to the kind of chairman who has no native sense of the geniality that ought to accompany his office. There is, for example, a type of man who thinks that the fitting way to introduce a lecturer is to say a few words about the finances of the society to which he is to lecture, for money, and about the difficulty of getting members to turn out to hear lectures. Everybody has heard such a speech a dozen times but it is the paid lecturer sitting on the platform who best appreciates it. It runs like this. Now, ladies and gentlemen, before I invite the lecturer of the evening to address us, there are a few words that I would like to say. There are a good many members who are in arrears with their fees. I am aware that these are hard times, and it is difficult to collect money, but at the same time the members ought to remember that the expenses of the society are very heavy. The fees that are asked by the lecturers, as I suppose you know, have advanced very greatly in the last few years. In fact, I may say that they are becoming almost prohibitive. This discourse is pleasant hearing for the lecturer. He can see the members who have not yet paid their annual dues eyeing him with hatred. The chairman goes on. Our finance committee were afraid at first that we could not afford to bring Mr. Leacock to our society but fortunately through the personal generosity of two of our members who subscribed ten pounds each out of their own pocket we are able to raise the required sum applause during which the lecturer sits looking and feeling like the embodiment of the required sum now ladies and gentlemen continues the chairman what i feel is that when we have members in the society who are willing to make this sacrifice because it is a sacrifice, ladies and gentlemen. We ought to support them in every way. The members ought to think it their duty to turn out to the lectures. I know that it is not an easy thing to do. On a cold night, like this evening, it is hard, I admit it is hard, to turn out from the comfort of one's own fireside and come and listen to a lecture. But I think that the members should look at it not as a matter of personal comfort, but as a matter of duty towards this society. We have managed to keep this society alive for fifteen years, and, though I don't say it in any spirit of boasting, it has not been an easy thing to do. It has required a good deal of pretty hard spade work by the committee. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I suppose you didn't come here to listen to me, and perhaps I have said enough about our difficulties and troubles. So without more ado, this is always a favorite phrase with chairmen. I'll invite Mr. Leacock to address the society. Oh, just a word before I sit down. Will all those who are leaving before the end of the lecture kindly go out through the side door and step as quietly as possible? 
Mr. Leacock. Anybody who is in the lecture business knows that that introduction is far worse than being called Mr. Leroyd. When any lecturer goes across to England from this side of the water, there is naturally a tendency on the part of the chairman to play upon this fact. This is especially true in the case of a Canadian like myself. The chairman feels that the moment is fitting for one of those great imperial thoughts that bind the English empire together. But sometimes the expression of the thought falls short of the full glory of the conception. Witness this, word for word, introduction that was used against me by a clerical chairman in a quiet spot in the south of England. Not so long ago, ladies and gentlemen, said the vicar, we used to send out to Canada various classes of our community to help build up that country. We sent out our laborers, we sent out our scholars and professors. Indeed, we even sent out our criminals. And now, with a wave of his hand towards me, they are coming back. There was no laughter. An English audience is nothing if not literal, and they are as polite as they are literal. They understood that I was a reformed criminal, and as such they gave me a hearty burst of applause. But there is just one thing that I would like to chronicle here in favor of the chairman and in gratitude for his assistance. Even at his worst, he is far better than having no chairman at all. Over in England, a great many societies and public bodies have adopted the plan of cutting out the chairman. Wearying of his faults, they have forgotten the reasons for his existence, and undertaken to do without him. The result is ghastly. The lecturer steps up onto the platform alone and unaccompanied. There is a feeble ripple of applause. He makes his miserable bow, and explains with as much enthusiasm as he can who he is. The atmosphere of the thing is so cold that an Arctic expedition isn't in it with it. I found also the further difficulty that in the absence of the chairman very often the audience, or a large part of it, doesn't know who the lecturer is. On many occasions I received on appearing a wild burst of applause under the impression that I was somebody else. I have been mistaken in this way for Mr. Briand, then Prime Minister of France, for Charlie Chaplin, for Mrs. Asquith, but stop, I may get into a libel suit. All I mean is that without a chairman, we celebrities get terribly mixed up together. To one experience of my tour as a lecturer, I will always be able to look back with satisfaction. I nearly had the pleasure of killing a man with laughing, and this in the most literal sense. American lecturers have often dreamed of doing this. I nearly did it. The man in question was a comfortable apoplectic-looking man with the kind of merry rubicund face that is seen in countries where they don't have prohibition. He was seated near the back of the hall and was laughing uproariously. All of a sudden I realized that something was happening. The man had collapsed sideways onto the floor. A little group of men gathered about him. They lifted him up, and I could see them carrying him out, a silent and inert mass. As in duty bound, I went right on with my lecture. But my heart beat high with satisfaction. I was sure that I had killed him. The reader may judge how high these hopes rose when a moment or two later a note was handed to the chairman, who then asked me to pause for a moment in my lecture, and stood up and asked, 
Is there a doctor in the audience? A doctor rose and silently went out. The lecture continued. But there was no more laughter. My aim had now become to kill another of them, and they knew it. They were aware that if they started laughing they might die. In a few minutes a second note was handed to the chairman. He announced very gravely, A second doctor is wanted. The lecture went on in deeper silence than ever. All the audience were waiting for a third announcement. It came. A new message was handed to the chairman. He arose and said, If Mr. Murchison, the undertaker, is in the audience, he will kindly step outside. That man, I regret to say, got well. Disappointing though it is to read it, he recovered. I sent back next morning from London a telegram of inquiry, I did it in reality so as to have a proper proof of his death, and received the answer, Patient doing well, is sitting up in bed and reading Lord Haldane's Relativity. No danger of relapse. End of section 10